All right. Well, let's let me pray and we'll jump into Psalm 46. Father, we um, we're glad to be here tonight with your people and the fellowship with the body of Christ. I thank you for um, the privilege to be a part of the body we call Grace Evangelical Church. I pray tonight that you will um, abide in our midst as we open truth. We thank you for the revealed word of God that teaches us how we are to live. But not only that, it reveals to us more of who you are. And I pray tonight that after having studied your word, that we would leave here refreshed and encouraged, knowing that you indeed are not simply our creator, but you are our God who abides in our midst. You are indeed our refuge, our ever-present help in time of troubles. Father, there are people in our body that um, are in difficult days. Uh, there are many suffering physically, and we lift all of those up to you. We pray that you will encourage those who are in these difficult times, and through their current sufferings, may they discover more of you. We thank you for grace provided through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Hey, guys, a couple of summers ago, it wasn't last summer, I don't think, I think it was the summer before last. We, the staff, got together and <clears throat> that we're going to teach during the summer months, and we uh, we decided to all stay on this uh, kind of a same theme. And so we had a summer in Psalms. Were any of you here when we taught through some of the Psalms a couple of summers ago? So all the staff just kind of picked our own Psalms, and we we just had a good time all through that summer studying the Book of Psalms. Well, tonight I'm going to speak out of Psalm 46, and probably use it again next Wednesday night. That wasn't one of the psalms we used. So this is, a, uh, this is not something I dug up out of the files, you know, because I didn't have time to study. So I just wanted that's a disclaimer in case you were part of our study in psalms. But when we studied psalms during the summer, in fact, I think I started, I was the first one to speak during that summer, and I gave a little bit of an introduction to the book of psalms. And if you were here, you might remember some of that. This is kind of I was going to say regurgitated stuff, but that wouldn't be proper. This is just as old stuff that you may have heard before. But guys, the, the book of Psalms was the Hebrew hymn book. You know, we have the Trinity hymnal in our pews. And although we don't pick them up very much because we put words on the screen, but that would the Trinity hymnal would be the hymnal or the hymn book that we would identify with. Well, the Hebrews, uh, the Jew still does today, uh, identifies the book of Psalms as the, their hymn book. And many of the Psalms, many of the Psalms were sung. They were songs of praise and they were sung aloud and, and they're sung today. In fact, we sing many Psalms. Many of the Psalms have been put to music and, uh, that we can relate to and we sing them even in our worship services here. The book of Psalms is in five parts. If you were, ever read through the Psalms, you notice they come to divisions, and they'll be book one, two, three, four, and five. I, I'm, I'm not sure why that um, came about. It's, uh, some scholars think it's a little bit artificial. There's no real theological reason for that. But nonetheless, the Psalms were divided into five books. And they, when they we come to the end of a book, a particular book, it always closes with, with a doxology. Like, uh, turn back just a page and you'll see Psalm, the close of Psalm 41, which is the close of book 1, moving into Psalm 42, the beginning of book 2, of which Psalm 46 is taken. But notice, 
verse 13 of Psalm 41. The psalmist says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So we see as we make a transition from one book to the, to the next, we have doxologies. So the, the Hebrew would say this. Uh, Moses gave us the five books of the Pentateuch, the Torah. Well, David, David gives us the five books of the Psalms. And so the Psalms were a prized possession and remain today prized possession of the Jew. Now, there are different kinds of Psalms, and all of these different kinds of Psalms are interspersed within the five books of Psalms. There are Psalms of laments. And these are easily identified because you can tell the people are in trouble and they're more or less saddened. Um, they're, they're, there's a sense that God has abandoned them, more or less, or that God has remained quiet through a long period of time. And then, the, so the psalm, psalmist would write psalms of lament, like Psalm 102, Hear my prayer, O Lord. And, let my cry come to you. Now, psalms of laments played an important part in the life of the Hebrew. If you've read or studied the Old Testament very much, you know that there are significant or extended periods of time when the Jews would, in essence, they would turn their back on Yahweh and they would rebel against God and worship foreign gods and and they were actually the ones who abandoned God. God didn't abandon them. But God would go through periods of time where he was quiet. And these periods of a, a quiet seasons, we could say, were necessary in the life of Israel. And so it is with us today. I was thinking about Psalms of Laments yesterday. And I thought about parenthood. You know, I've raised a couple. And some of you have too. And uh, more than I have. But um, I look back on my phases of parenthood and I remember I was thinking of the day that, that we brought Brian home from the hospital and we were excited anxious parents and we responded to every whim and whimper of that baby I mean the first night at home it's like we couldn't sleep soundly we were waiting on the first whimper out of the bassinet just next to the bed and we responded immediately. We answered that cry. But then as our children grew older, we grew wiser as parents. And, you know, there came a time when we didn't get up every time Brian cried out. We let him, we let him cry out. That was a necessary part of growing up. And then, you know, when our kids take a, a serious fall or something and they scream out, and we, we know that cry as a parent, we... We know what it means. We know that, that really they're in trouble and we would respond to them quickly. And then as they grew older and then even older, there, went, there were times when we knew as parents we would, we would have to withhold ourselves for a while, for a season, because our children needed to learn a lesson. So we were quiet. But we remained their loving parents nonetheless. We never abandoned them. That's what the Psalms of laments were like. God never abandons us as His people. But there are, se there are seasons when God is, seems to be silent. And that is often for our own good. And then there are Psalms of uh, thanksgiving, like Psalm 100. And we, we sing 
like Psalm 100 occasionally, shout to the Lord, all the earth let us sing. And then, then there's another psalm where we, we add the words power and majesty, praise to the king. Well, psalms of thanksgiving were written when God would reveal himself to his people again. He would answer their prayers or psalms of lament. And the people would begin to offer thanksgiving to God. It was like renewed fellowship between God's people and himself. Then there are, of course, psalms of praise, like Psalm 100, shout for the Lord. Oh, I just said that one. Uh, Psalm 48. This was actually, it might be on the same page we're looking at it, Psalm 46. You see Psalm 48? In fact, uh, Psalm 48, a psalm of praise, is a psalm that I learned as a child when we put to music. Would you like me to sing it for you? Psalm 48? I kind of like to, but I don't know if you want me to or not, but... Uh, I have to get it in the right key. But we, we, we would sing, and it's not exactly in the NIV, because you have to know, guys, I, in my tradition, I grew up in the King James Version. So anything that wasn't the King James Version really wasn't of God. So, uh, in fact, if my, if my dad knew I was teaching out of the NIV tonight, I'd probably be in trouble. But anyway, I, so I learned uh, Psalm 48, and it went like this. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. In the mountain of His holiness, beautiful for situations, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great King. And you know what we do? We would, we'd, we would, uh, that was just the beginning. We'd modulate. You know what modulation means? You'd go to the next, just the next key. And then when we moved to the next key, half of the room would start harmonizing. And uh, we learned this in children's choir when I was growing up. And it, it was just a, just a beautiful psalm. Well, these were psalms of praise. So the point I'm making here with the psalms of praise is the psalms were written really to be put to music so that the people could sing these psalms. And we come to Psalm 46. And what we have here, guys, is really a blend of a... a um, a psalm of thanksgiving and a psalm of praise. Now let me read Psalm 46. I think it would be good if we read the chapter before we talked about it. Psalm 46, it's a beautiful psalm. And you, many of you probably have turned to this psalm many times in your past. The psalm has said, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way. And the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts His voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come and see the works of the Lord. The desolations He has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. By the way, there's a third one in there. I skipped the first Selah. There are three 
There are three divisions of this psalm, and they all end with this Hebrew word, selah. Uh, and it's, it's not certain what this word means, but what I've read is it's been defined this way. Lift it up. <laughs> so they come to, it's like they come to, the psalmist comes, think of it this way, guys. The psalmist writes this psalm, psalm of praise and thanksgiving, and it's put to music, and then it's passed to the hands of the, uh, of the instrumentalist and the choir director and the singers in the temple say later now they have this psalm. And so the, the choir director, the worship leader is leading the psalm of praise and they finish this first stanza and he, and he hollers out like, lift it up, sing louder. You realize what you're singing, don't you? You ever been encouraged that way in worship? You know, sometimes Jim Umloff will do that, you know. And it, sometimes it'll scare you. He'll sing out, you know. But that, in, in essence, he's saying, Selah, lift it up. You, pay attention to what you're singing. That's what this word really, in essence, means. And so with that division, we see this kind of natural three parts to Psalm 46. Now, that's the psalm. We've read it. Let me put it into context for you because context is always important when you're studying the Word of God. When you, when you think of context this way, and sometimes I explain it like this, it's like looking through a window. And you look through the window and you look into the past and you, you try to understand what were the circumstances that surrounded, what, was, what, was, what were the current events that caused someone to pin these words under inspiration of God. So when you look at context, you get a feel of what's going on and what the people were experiencing. And then with context, it allows you to have a better understanding of how we can apply the text to us, to ourselves today. So let me give you the context. If you really want to get a, we don't have time to read it, but uh, the, the context of Psalm 46, most scholars believe parallel with 2 Kings chapter 18 and through 19, roughly that part. If you, if you want to turn back there, I'm not going to read the text, but at least you can see the headings in your scripture. You remember this guy by the name of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria? He had come to the throne uh, of, of Assyria and he had become this worldwide menace. He was feared above all the kingdoms. Assyria, during Hezekiah's days and Isaiah's days, they were peers. They, were, uh, they lived during the same period. It was during these days that Sennacherib came to rule in Assyria. And he began to conquer nations around him. And historians tell us that he swept down. He left Assyria and his armies moved south. And they, they, they first come to uh, Israel. You remember, if you remember after Solomon's death, uh, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Remember the periods of the divided kingdom? Well, the Assyrian army swept down first, and around 722 B.C., they conquer Israel and they take, take the people into captivity. Well, the next place geographically in Palestine as they come south, of course, is Judah. And here in the southern part of the kingdom is the beloved city, the city of God that I sang about in Psalm 48, the city of God that sits on the hill Mount Zion. And this is where Hezekiah now is ruling. And the people, more or less, are fortified in the great city of Jerusalem. 
and they, and they know what's happened. Sennacherib and his mighty armies have swept south, and it's like a an ancient form of the modern blitzkrieg that we we're familiar with it, with Germany, and their mighty war machine has has. Uh, left this scorched earth policy. And Israel, or Judah, is familiar with this. And Hezekiah knows what his people are facing. And so the, the mighty armies of, of Sennacherib come down, and now they're threatening the city of God. Now at first, Sennacherib takes payments from Hezekiah. And you'll, you'll find part of this in Second Kings. And in essence, Hezekiah kind of pays him off. Just leave us alone. We're not going to give you any trouble. And, and then, so Sennacherib takes the money for a while. Then he has second, second thoughts. He says, no, I can't, I can't pass up this great fortified city and leave them behind me and my armies. They'll constantly be a, a nuisance to me. And so he has second thoughts. And so he goes back and he sends his commanders. And this is where the story is in, in Second Kings chapter 18. He sends one of his commanders to meet with the officials of Hezekiah. And they, they come out of the city and they meet kind of on neutral ground. And... Uh, Sennacherib's commanders say, and they, they warn them, this is what you must do. Tell your people to give it up. Tell Hezekiah to surrender. If you don't, you're going to be destroyed. We're going to take the leftover people into captivity. And so while they're having this conversation, it's kind of a neat story. The, um, the representatives of Hezekiah, and I forget the guy's name, it's in Second Kings 18. He said, oh, kind of quiet down. Could you please speak in Aramaic? We know Aramaic, like that's their language, the Assyrians. We know Aramaic. Don't speak in Hebrew because the people behind on the wall, they can hear you speaking. We don't want to alarm the people. So, but the commander said, oh, he, he continues to speak in Hebrew because he wants all the people to hear the, the warnings of Sennacherib. If you don't surrender, we're going to. And the promise is if you'll lay down your arms, we're going, we'll take care of you. you know, we're going to take you off into captivity, but we're going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey, you know, so that things they could relate to. And so this commander of Sennacherib gives the warning. Hezekiah's representatives come back into the city and tell Hezekiah the ultimatum. And Hezekiah prays to God. And he, Hezekiah knows full well, unless God intervenes, the city will fall. Now, uh, you know, just recently we celebrated the uh, invasion of Normandy. June the 6th was the what, 60th year or 40th? See, 60th anniversary. And I watched that stuff at home until Carla was just sick of it. She, I had to go to another room. She couldn't watch any more of it. But uh, there was, the, you know, the invasion of Normandy... We, we see it as Americans. We often see it through the eyes of Americans. What it would have been like. That's the, Tom Brokaw calls it the greatest generation. Carla says I was born two generations late. I should have been born back then and made the invasion. But just fascinated with that period in, in the life of our country. But we always see it through the eyes of the Americans. Can you imagine what it would have been like to, to wake up and look out your bunker, a German bunker, on the morning of June the 6th, and when the fog lifted to see the foe out there? I, can you imagine? I mean, this was the largest armada ever assembled. and Never again in the history of, of, of mankind will that many naval vessels ever be assembled. And can you imagine the experience of seeing that? Whoa, it's me. We're, we are defeated. 
Now, that's, in a, that's kind of the sense, you can imagine, that the, the Hebrew in the city of God would have experienced when he looked out of the walled cities, the, the portholes of the city, and looked across the plains, and he saw the Assyrian armies forming their battle lines. And they are arrayed against this, this, this city of God, and they're saying there's no hope. Now, if you, if you know the rest of the story, what happens is, you know, they, the Assyrian army forms their battle lines, and Sennacherib, like, Gives them 24 hours. You know, I'll give you. I'll give you to daylight tomorrow. And and so Hezekiah goes before God and 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 he prays down this miracle. And during the, that following night, the angel of God sweeps across the Assyrian army. And scholars tell us that about 185,000 men were slaughtered by the angel of God that night. And the next morning, when Sennacherib is awakened and he discovers what's happened during the night. He knows it's a miracle of God that he cannot face the God of Israel. He packs his bags and he, and he runs. It's a miracle of God. So it's after God's divine intervention in the life of the Hebrew nation, there in the city of God, that the psalmist, we think possibly Hezekiah, writes this great psalm that God, is our refuge and ever-present help in time of trouble. So what I want to do, and, and, and we've got about six or seven minutes, maybe a little bit more tonight. Let's just look at the first part of this psalm and make some application to us tonight. You understand the context. You know that it, by only by divine intervention have the people of God been saved. With that in mind, we can make some proper application for us tonight. First of all, in this first part of this psalm, I hope you notice that we see that this miracle of God, this intervention of God, the reality that God is our refuge, that it is a personal reality for us. Guys, sometimes we read Scripture and we just miss, we, you know, we just miss the very obvious because we're, sometimes we just look too hard, I think. But the psalmist is telling us tonight that God is... <coughs> Our refuge. Uh, guys, God is my refuge. This, he is a personal God. He is, he is our God. Uh, last week, I don't know if any of you watched the, uh, the funeral of President Reagan, but I, I was off last Friday, so I was fortunate. I just I watched it with intense. The, the, when they gathered in the... In the National Cathedral and there in Washington, D.C., our National Cathedral. And I was sitting there watching that service in the National Cathedral, and I remembered the last time our people gathered there as a nation. Remember what it was in the National Cathedral? Anybody? 9-11. Right after 9-11, the president called for a, a, a service, and the people, I'd say the people, Congress gathered and politicians and people of of importance gathered in our national cathedral and we had a prayer service. But there was a little bit of difference between what happened this last week in the national cathedral and what happened a couple of years ago. I don't know if you remember when we had this prayer service in the national cathedral after 9-11. They very carefully represented every religion possible. Of course, the Christian faith was there. I think, you know, Billy Graham, I think, wasn't Billy Graham, uh, didn't he speak? And uh, but there was also a Muslim priest uh, represented there. All the various religions that were 
common in our land today were represented. It was a mixture, plethora of different religions. And then last week was basically the the Christian faith. There was a Jewish, there was a rabbi that read an Old Testament passage in, um, in during uh, Reagan's funeral service there in the National Cathedral. But guys, here's my point with that illustration. Everybody believes that there must be a God. I mean, by and large, men recognize that there must be a God. There, there is a God out there. But for us and for the Hebrew, it, it's, it's different. There is not a God out there who is simply a supreme being who is the creator of the universe. We're reminded here that this God is our God. To us, He's more than our creator God. He is our Father God and He is our refuge. And He comes to us Because we cannot help ourselves. If He does not intervene, it's hopeless. And so this is the kind of God that we serve. God is a personal God and He is our Father. He is our, the psalmist says, our refuge. Do you know that some people call Psalm 46 Luther's psalm? Martin Martin Luther, the great reformer? Do you know what him resulted in Luther's love for Psalm 46? Yeah, that's it. A mighty fortress is our God. Luther got that out of Psalm 46. And I think you know the circumstances in Luther's life in, in October of, I think, 1517. And he tacks those 95 theses on the wall. <laughs> this, kind of this humorous rendition of Luther tacking the 95 theses on the wall. And like there's four tacks he's got to get in this thing. On the last one, he misses the tack and he hits his thumb. And he says a bad word, you know, right there at the end. And he's thinking, you know, it's, it's, you think it's bad now? You wait till I face the church, the Roman church. I mean, Luther, guys, you know, Luther, um, you know, once in a while we have little schisms in the church today. There, there's a, I heard yesterday, I think it was on the radio, that maybe the Southern Baptist Convention are meeting this week. But anyway, there was a report coming out of the convention that the Southern Baptists have voted unanimously to pull away from some Baptist organization. I can't remember the name of it. But they're grown too liberal. And so the Southern Baptists have said, we can no longer identify with these people. So it's a minor schism going on. And then in recent days, the Episcopal Church has gone through a schism uh, the conservative Episcopals of trying to pull away from the more moderate Episcopal church. In fact, we've received people visiting our church coming from the Episcopal church because of that small schism. And you know what it was over? You know, the ordination of, uh, for the Southern Baptists, they struggle with, uh, in years past, with the ordination of women, and then some denominations get past that. And now the big thing is the ordination of gay Men or women to the ministry, and, you, and it's just—it's just, you know, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back, and so there's a small schism. And these are the kind of issues that we have schisms over. It was far more serious. I'm not making light of those issues. Don't misunderstand me. But what Luther was facing was far more serious than that. For Luther, it meant to him. I really believe Luther understood that once he tacked these things on the wall and he made his stand, as he said, I here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. 
I think Luther understood that this was a life and death situation for him. I think Luther really believed that he was going to lose his life for the cause of justification by faith alone. And so he stands there and he makes his stand. And out of this whole Reformation movement grows these great hymns of the faith. By the way, one of the, one of the tenets of the Reformation is a recapturing of, uh, of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are put back into the hands of the people. And you know what happens? It's, once the people of God begin to discover the gospel again, you know what happens? They begin to sing again. And so the, some of the greatest hymnals in the church were written during the periods following the Reformation. Calvin and other great reformers. Luther was a prolific hymn writer. And he writes this great hymn. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Now, we make the mistake of thinking that Luther is writing about... He, he, he's facing, of course he is, the medieval Roman church and their awesome power. He, he is standing against that. But Luther had something far more serious and far more important in mind when he begins to write, A mighty fortress is our God. Luther is thinking about the spiritual. He's thinking about the soul. He's thinking about the refuge we have in God through Jesus Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm saying to you through all of that, that the psalmist is writing that God is our refuge because the psalmist relates to God as a personal God. We have relationship with Him. He is our refuge. One more thing. Um, when I was a firefighter, we, one, of the, one of the things we were always worried about in fighting structure fires was collapse of wall, building collapse. And often, in fact, there have been Memphis firefighters killed where outer walls of buildings would, would fall on them and crush them. And so in our training, you know what we were trained to do? If we knew a wall was coming down, we were trained to, to get close, as close as we could fall, as close as we could to the, the base of that wall. The natural tendency is to run out and run away. Well, that's where you're in harm's way. The wall will fall on you out there. And so you had to kind of go against your first impulse and, and run and fall at the base of the wall. So when it falls, that's where the safest place is to be, right there at the base of the wall. It's hard to do, but that was the right thing to do. Now, here's my point in that analogy. Guys, there is a, a wrath of God that men will face. And um, in fact, the book of Revelations calls it the wrath of the Lamb to come. And the best place to be to escape the wrath of God is to run to God. Run to Him and fall, fall close to Him. And there you will escape the wrath of the Lamb to come. So, and and that's, that's what the psalmist is trying to communicate to us in this idea of refuge. No doubt, the people in the city of God at that time feared the destruction of the city. They feared physical destruction. But there was a far greater message for the people of God to learn. That God is our refuge and that we can run to Him. He also... Tells, teaches us in this passage that this God is, is powerful. He says He's a very present help in trouble. The, the word trouble can be translated tight places. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of examples we could use. I don't know if you've ever been in a tight place. you ever been in a situation where you've been, you know, we, we say, saved by the skin of our teeth. 
Have you ever been in harm's way and you didn't even know it and you were snatched to safety? It's like maybe you stepped out into a street intersection and your mother jerked you back and you didn't even know a car was coming. That's what the psalmist is trying to communicate, that this God of ours is a powerful God and He is ever-present with us to save us from harm. He is that kind of God. And then it's a, it's a certain kind of help. It's a firm help. And I'm going to stop here because I want, I'll pick this up next, uh, next Wednesday night right here in this first section. We, we close out this first section. That this, it's like the psalmist parallels the uncertainty and the instability of life outside of God and then the sure, firm footing and refuge we have as we draw close to Him. So that's where we'll pick up next week when we, and then I'll try to finish this song. Believe it or not, I think I can finish it next Wednesday night. Any, any comment? For those of you who I gave Scripture to, I had four or five people, um, bring those back next Wednesday night because <laughs> I'm going to ask you to read those next Wednesday night. If you can't be here, that's okay. I can, I'll sub for you. But just stuck, stiff, uh, stick those in your Bible and we'll pick up there. Any, any comments, questions before we dismiss? I told you I was going to let you out a little early. Then you didn't believe me, did I? Did you? It's good, it's good to have you with us. Let me pray and we'll be gone. Father, just the reality that we can call you our Father is uh, almost beyond our comprehension, but it is true. It is reality because we are safe, safe in your arms through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his work, and we thank you, Father, that. You are indeed are our refuge. You're an ever-present help in time of troubles. And Lord, uh, there's plenty of trouble around us. The world is a mess. Nations uh, are falling. Cultures are deteriorating. Uncertainty on every hand. Even, even in our country. We, uh, we, we are concerned about our own future because of the, the moral fiber of our country seems to be deteriorating around us. And there is a love of man rather than a love of God. And Lord, it's in these days that we, we are not anxious. These are days in which we find comfort and peace knowing that you are our God. You are our refuge. You are our help. And we delight in that tonight. And we praise your name for it, thanking you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.